part of the challenge today for so many leaders, regardless of size, is you're so in the business day to day that you're not able to remove yourself for enough time to understand what actually is the context of your current environment. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, coming to you from the Road 55 studio in Edmonton, Alberta, where every episode we feature a different thought leader or best-selling author, all in the name of helping you become the best leader you can be. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, CEO of Results, where we believe there's an easier way to build your business. We help your leadership team implement disciplined execution to make it easier to get more of what you want from your business. Now, trying to find the right moves to grow your business can be confusing and overwhelming. But did you know there are 10 simple paths to growth that can work for any company? In today's episode, I'm joined by Tiffany Bova, where she'll share the tips for how to choose the right growth paths for your unique situation. And not only that, she'll also share ways for implementing them and how to tell if they're actually working. Now, my special guest today is Tiffany Bova. Uh, Tiffany Bova is the global growth evangelist at Salesforce and the author of the Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Growth IQ, Get Smarter About the Choices That Will Make or Break Your Business. Bova has been named to the latest Thinkers 50 list of the world's top management thinkers and is a welcomed guest on Bloomberg, BNN, and MSNBC, among others. She also contributes to publications including Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and the Rotman School of Management. As host of the What's Next with Tiffany Bova podcast, Bova has interviewed a growing number of exceptional humans, including Arianna Huffington, <laughs> Chester Elton, Dan Pink, Ginger Hardage, Seth Godin, and Tom Peters. Bova is a top Twitter influencer in business growth, customer experience, digital transformation, the future of work, and sales. She was named one of Inc. Magazine's 37 sales experts you need to follow on Twitter, a LinkedIn top sales expert to follow, a top 100 women in tech, and one of the most powerful and influential women in California, in, according to the National Diversity Council. So make sure you stay on her good side. Tiffany, welcome <laughs> to Unleashed. No, oh, thank you for having me, Jeff. I really uh, am excited to be here with you. Oh, I've been, no, I've enjoyed uh, our interactions, uh, particularly on Twitter for quite a while now. Uh, you know, not just uh, not just informative, but you're also just so friendly, kind, and engaging. Uh, so many thought leaders don't engage, and I mean, I, I actually am curious. Like, how did you how did you come up and curate? your social media approach, because not everybody takes the same open and engaging one that you do. Well, I, I will say this, it requires commitment because, you know, it's not something that you just can't pay attention to if you're going to really try to use that as a communication vehicle. You know, it's one of the fastest sources to share information, uh, but I, I actually manage it myself. And, and so I think that that has a lot to do with my ability on both Twitter and LinkedIn to stay as engaged as I can. I mean, obviously, sometimes I miss things, but I try not to. Um, and I also know sort of what my lane is. I know where you know my opinion would really add value and then I know that there's some topics that my opinion just won't add value uh, and there's some things of course I'd love to say that I don't say so I try to you know stay as neutral and you know sort of uplifting and positive as I can yeah fair enough I just find it so endearing and engaging and and, and, and refreshing too the uh, you know one of the things that you do on Twitter though that was one of my favorite aspects of your account was you had this thing called shower thoughts where you would just post little anecdotes uh, almost on a daily basis, but it seems like you've gone away from, uh, from shower thoughts. So tell me this isn't gone for good. It's not gone for good. I was actually doing it literally daily for uh, 60 days just to sort of say, you know, I just want to put little thoughts out there. Um, and, and then and then I realized that, you know, maybe people thought I was taking too long of showers. <laughs> so, you know, I, I wanted to sort of maybe now I'll do it weekly instead of daily, but you're not alone. People really enjoyed them and got kind of a kick out of them and, and reshared them. Uh, sometimes they were just random and sometimes they, you know, were funny. Sometimes they weren't. Um, but 
it was actually a good exercise to go, you know, what, what, what am I thinking about? And what do I think is just, you know, really ridiculous or what have I never thought about? So it was just kind of a light, fun way to share content. Yeah, totally. Well, I'm glad they're coming back and, uh, and very, very unique and very, and very engaging for sure. So I know uh, people are not tuning into the conversation today to talk about shower thoughts necessarily. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about something a lot more serious and, and I'm not, I'm not sure if there's something that executives think more about than, than growing in their companies and, and, and how to do it. And, uh, you know, it, it, it occurs to me that you have a real knack for analyzing data. And, and I was wondering, like, how did you get so good at assessing and analyzing data to begin with? So I'll say this. Um, I was a practicing sales, marketing, and customer service leader for almost 15 years in startups, midsize, and Fortune 500 companies. So I was actually doing the job. Now, you know, it might have been on a smaller scale. I might not have had, you know, hundreds of thousands of people I was responsible for, or tens of thousands, or a billion dollar quota. Uh, but I absolutely had the responsibility to deliver across, you know, those disciplines. Uh, and then I, I found myself completely burnt out and I needed a change. And so I really changed professions and got into the analyst and consulting community uh, with a company called Gartner. And over a decade, I became a research fellow there. And I will tell you that I am not an academic in that way. I don't have my MBA. You know, I, I'm not a professor at a college. Uh, I'm sort of somebody who's learned by doing. Uh, and I really had to figure out what is my superpower if I'm going to be an analyst. Like, I'm actually not great with data. I'm not really great with researching because it had never been a skill I had really acquired. But I found my superpower, which was looking at disparate data points and points of view from Gartner uh, while I was there, obviously, and then from others, you know, reading and podcasts and TED Talks and conversations I had with, with clients, as well as just people I would randomly meet in the business world. And I found that my superpower was my ability to aggregate those different data points, disparate data points, and tell the story in a way that was compelling and actionable and meaningful for sort of all kinds of companies, right? That's very small solopreneur, entrepreneurs, small mid-business, and then global enterprise. And I could test those hypotheses or theories or positions on a daily basis because of the job that I had. But I'll be totally honest with you, Jeff, you know, the first couple of years were really, really tough for me. Like I didn't have my sort of legs underneath me of understanding what did it mean to be an analyst and an advisor and a consultant. That's a totally different way of viewing uh, business instead of doing and carrying a quota and, you know, trying to be responsible at an executive layer, really being behind the scenes uh, and helping from a strategic standpoint, some of the largest technology brands in the world grow. And so I'd say that while I'm not, I wouldn't put data analysis as one of my you know, top three skills, um, but I am able to aggregate it uh, at scale. And, and I, apparently, you know, clients in the market has felt that I've done a pretty good job at it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so through, through that work and that, uh, that refinement and distillation, so you have been able to identify 10 growth paths. Now, how challenging was it narrowing it down to 10? So great question. I, I'd say this. I had pretty consistently over the course of the decade, there's a couple of reasons why companies will want to talk to you about growth. One is they're in hyper growth mode. How do they continue to scale and not break the company? You know, just really crush underneath the pace in which the business is, is growing. One may be that they're growing at a pretty consistent rate. So let's say they grow three, 5% year over year, year over year, year over year, and they're comfortable, um, but maybe they want to increase that uh, going forward. The, the third is they've really hit a growth stall where they might have been growing and then all of a sudden they see that their growth rates are declining. And it might be that they see them declining quarter over quarter or year over year. And so they raise the alarm. And so having conversations in those three scenarios sort of uncovers what works and doesn't work in those situations. And so I used to hear pretty consistently when sales would start to slow or revenue would start to slow, let's hire more salespeople. Let's spend more marketing dollars to put more into the funnel, right? To drive more business and let's cut costs. And I knew there had to be more than those three choices. Like it, there's more than that. 
So I went on sort of a fact-finding mission and, you know, just based on the fact that I had had almost 4,000 conversations over a decade with businesses from around the world, I had a good understanding of what was working. So I, look, Growth IQ, those 10 paths, well, nine of the 10 anyway, are things that companies have been doing for decades. The Ansoff matrix, right? Sell more to your existing customers of what you have, to new customers what you have, new products to existing, new products to new. That's really for my growth paths. What I did was I modernized the way uh, companies have been growing for so long using all this technology and capability that we now have at our fingertips. Big data, social cloud, mobile, AR, VR, AI, machine learning, automation, meta, whatever it's going to be, uh, that really allowed me to say putting that lens on top of these tried and true growth methods uh, was a way for me to give people a glimpse into what are you doing today, what's working, and what should you be considering to help you in one of those three scenarios, right? Hypergrowth, consistent year-over-year year growth, and then the opportunity for a growth stall. Yeah. Now, Tiffany, what's a better sequence here in terms of conversation? Would you rather talk a little bit how an organization decides what growth paths might be suitable for them, or would you prefer to talk about some of the growth paths first? So I will tell you that the first thing is you have to understand the context of your market. Yeah. So if you were to say, which growth path should people consider? I, I'd have to back up. Now, when I first became an analyst at Gartner, I might've actually answered that question immediately without even thinking, well, this is what you should do. Yeah. And then as I started to sort of learn, you know, my craft, if you will, I realized that I had to understand what's working today. What isn't working? Who are your customers? What are your internal capabilities? What is your culture? What is your leadership style? What kinds of resources do you have at your disposal? What partnerships do you have in place? What marketing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that allowed me to take that context. And that's the first step. So before you even decide what you should be doing, that context is a reality check of what do I actually have in my bag that I can leverage? Because if you, for example, say, I'm going to go innovate and launch a brand new product, that's our way to growth. But you don't have an innovative culture and you don't have the mechanisms in place to innovate. That may be a great strategy that is failed and doomed day one because your people don't even know what that means. Like go invent a new product, right? Or go figure out what we need to do, but it's not the products and services we have now. And if you can't be honest with yourself about that context, there's no possible way you can set yourself up for success to determine even which 10 paths, one of or multiple of those paths you would need to pursue. So I always want to start there. Right. So maybe when you, you talked a little bit about it, but I think that would be helpful to elaborate a bit on how does a typical company take a step back and accurately assess the context for which they're currently operating in? Yeah, you know, look, part of the challenge today for so many leaders, regardless of size, is you're so in the business day to day that you're not able to remove yourself for enough time to understand what actually is the context of your current environment. That may mean talking to employees, which, you know, I know that we're both fans of Tom Peters, right? Management by walking around, whether it's virtually or in person, depending on where you're listening to this, you have to talk to your employees. Then you also have to talk to your customers, making sure that you are able to understand what they might not even know they need in the future, uncovering those kinds of development uh, jobs to be done, if you will. Then yeah. you need to look internally and say, you know, do we have the systems, people, processes, and technology in place to even do what it is that we want to do? And then maybe what are the things we need to stop doing? And if you could get into a regular cadence of doing that, it maybe spend an hour a day, a couple of hours a week, just to say, hey, I'm going to pick something and I'm going to dig into it and understand more about it so I can make more informed decisions. That's the first place to start is don't think that you know the answer to all of your yeah. questions, opportunities and challenges within the four walls uh, that you're operating from, because it's proven time and time again that leaders are never 100 percent correct. So you may be surprised to learn 
that your frontline people know more of what's going on in the business than you will ever know from running it from a spreadsheet or, you know, a CRM system or from, you know, the reports that you get out of out of your AI. So ultimately that's where I would start is having those conversations and uncovering what's going on. And that's the place that I think so many executives miss is that they just don't spend the time to ask those questions. They make the unfortunate assumption that what worked in the past will work today. It's not how they do it. We tried it. It failed in the past. You know, all of the reasons why they don't want to get a little uncomfortable by uncovering things that they need to do. Yeah. So customer experience is is one of the fundamental growth paths. And actually, I think you suggested it's the foundational growth path. But what does customer experience actually mean from your perspective? Look, you know, it was maybe uh, now it's probably 12 years ago. I was part of the team uh, at Gartner that made the prediction that the chief marketing officer would spend more than the chief information officer on technology. And I think we put it forward that it was by 2017, I think. And we were accurate and we were almost accurate to the T. When we started to see marketers spending money like that, and by the way, it wasn't like search engine optimization and website and e-commerce. It was literally hardware, software, you know, design architects, uh, developers, APIs, change management. I mean, they were building stacks, managing technology, obviously not as a CMO, but got the team together uh, and then literally had connection points into the CIO to make sure that the technology was integrated internally. But that was to go after this new kind of experience paradigm. We believed it was going to be the next battleground that products and services would con continue to fight on price and especially in the commodity industry for long sales cycle, complex, expensive projects, especially in technology, um, but in other things as well. You know, ultimately, you have to make sure that the experience is about not only how they feel when they engage with your people, but it's your website, it's your portals, it's your FAQs, it's your chatbots, it's your web apps, you know, it's your products, it's your services. It's the combination of all kinds of things. And I think the mistake um, people make is that they feel like customer experience is not my responsibility. Like I'm the receptionist or I'm, you know, the, the uh, person who cleans the office or, you know, I'm someone in finance or I'm someone in HR, all those things touch the humans, the people, the systems, and the processes that engage with customers. So for me, uh, customer experience is all encompassing because customers will remember the experience they have with a brand much longer than the price that they paid. Yeah. And Tiffany, I mean, you've worked in, in all kinds of organizations and I'm, and I'm curious, what are some things that you have seen work really effectively for organizations to make customer service embedded in the hearts and minds of all employees and not just a couple of people or a department? Yeah, I usually ask executives one question. You know, when I'm in front of those that run customer service, which is now in many ways been rebranded to, to customer success, is do you view your, and I'm going to focus very exclusively on the call center, uh, do you view your call center as a cost? So is it totally like, how many calls do we get? If we get 100 calls an hour, we need 10 people, and each person can take 10 calls an hour, and that's how we schedule. But that means if they take 10 calls an hour, they can only be on the phone for a maximum of six minutes each. And it doesn't matter what the problem is for the customer. That is the, that is the metrics. That is the way we run it. And so if a person in the call center, an agent goes longer than six minutes, they get dinged, right? That they're not doing what they should be doing, right? Get people on and off the call within six minutes. That is sort of the cost center mentality. The other is sort of the Zappos model, like stay on the call as long as you'd like, um, that the customer needs your assistance. And if it's an hour or two, this is all about customer happiness and satisfaction and serving them. Now, I don't mean wasting time, but I mean, until you solve the problem. And there's one famous story from Zappos that um, it was a bride waiting for her shoes for her wedding. Um, it didn't make it in time. And so they sent it out via courier. And, you know, the, the literally the call center agent stayed on the line um, for hours waiting for them to get the delivery uh, all in the 
you know, sort of aspiration of delivering this compelling service. So if you can ask yourself, is it viewed as a cost center or is it viewed as a way for us to make sure that we are serving our customers, they're successful using whatever it is we're selling. And if they have concerns or even positive things that they need to, you know, get answered, that you're there to do it. That is a very different approach. And it makes CFOs very nervous. It makes executives very nervous. Like they don't want this sort of autonomy of you could just stay on the phone all day and talk to customers. Like you do have a job to be done, but I don't think that you should use the internal metrics as the gate between the ability for your people to serve your customers or not. So I, I think that that's a great example of, you know, showing that that kind of mentality specifically in customer service centers uh, has to shift. Otherwise, no matter how customer centric you may say you are, you're still being driven by cost. Yeah, those are great examples uh, with, uh, uh, with Zappos. It reminds me of some of the stuff that came out of Bonobos, the clothing company as well. They've got some pretty awesome customer service stories themselves. Uh, how, how do you know that you have reached the threshold of, of just slightly surpassing what your customers expect to stay with you. Like you can get blindsided by a competitor that's doing more than you on the customer service side, the customer experience side, but you can also get caught up, I think, adding too many bells and whistles that might not be that valuable. So how does a business perhaps tell if they're meeting the expectations that are required to keep customers uh, for the long haul? This goes back to what I was saying around context. Ask them. <laughs> Like, don't make the assumption you know what customers want or what they feel is a compelling experience. Now, let me be clear here. There's sort of an asterisk at the end of that statement. I don't mean you have to run in a thousand directions and satisfy every whim that a customer has. But if you don't even know what they have as their bar, so I'm going to pick personalization. That is definitely a bar they want you to hurt, you know, jump over. Now, it's not dear valued customer, dear Tiffany Bova, dear Tiffany. Like that is not personalization. That's sort of personalization circa 2000. I mean, we were doing that, you know, uh, in kind of 2004, 2005 timeframe. I would say it has to be dear Tiffany. We know you've done these three things with us in the last six months. Because of that, we think this one thing that we've now just launched would be perfect for you. And here's why here's the things one, two, and three you'd need to do to take advantage of whatever this is. Please call here or do this or do that. We look forward to hearing from you. Now, all of a sudden you've said, well, you, you know, me, you know what I've purchased from you in the past. You're predicting and being much, much more understanding of what I might need in the future because of all the knowledge you have with other customers who may look like me, whether personally or as a business, small industry, sector, region, whatever it may be. And it also says that you are making investments to continue to deliver those kinds of personalized, predictive, just-in-time kinds of engagement that they expect. And I give that as sort of an overarching umbrella. I don't care what industry you're in, what region, what sector, what segment, what size. Customers pretty consistently in B2B and B2C uh, are saying that. And a lot of these expectations are being set now by B2C, especially because we've just come out of two years of this hyper acceleration around digitization with AI and bots and technology and investments as people work from home and work um, kind of in this hybrid environment. There's a lot of things that the expectation is being pulled from B2C companies like Zappos, we just used as an example, and you go, I'm a B2B company, Zappos has no bearing on me. Yes, but that buyer for you in B2B is a customer of Zappos in their B2C life. That expectation is going to show up in B2B when they go, geez, I get terrible communication. Why isn't it like my you know, X, Y, Z communication I get on my, you know, in my C time, if you will. Um, and so that's, that's sort of where I'd frame that out. Gotcha. So another, uh, another growth path that you talk about is customer base penetration, which is basically just selling more things to your existing customer base. And I think you know, it's a pretty easy concept to understand, but one of the questions I have when I, when I think about that as a, as a growth path is how do you know you have enough customers for that approach to be sustainable? Yeah, you know, look, that really came about, I knew selling more to the customers you already have was an important growth model, growth path, growth lever. 
And it really came to fruition with me. I was flying back. It's one of the stories in the book. I was flying from San Francisco back to Los Angeles. And I sat next to this gentleman who was an entrepreneur, owned a textile business in downtown LA. And uh, I was writing the book at the time, actually. And he was reading over my shoulder and said, oh, you know, are you writing a book? And, and, you know, I said, I am. I closed my laptop. We started up this conversation. And I was in that customer-based penetration chapter. Uh, and he was saying, well, I'm really looking to grow. You know, we only, we're a very small company. We're about three and a half million in turnover, U.S. dollars. Um, and we're trying to get to five million. We just struck a deal with Amazon and Walmart to, you know, serve, to sell our textiles. And I said, yeah, besides that, tell me how many customers do you have? He's like, we have 100,000 customers. I'm like, oh my God. Like, do you have any businesses would, would you know, be so thrilled to have a hundred thousand customers. Like that is amazing. Tell me a little bit about them. How much do they buy? How often do they buy? What's their average sale price? He knew none of that. So he was, you know, really trying to push me to say, what should he be doing? And I said, before you do any of that, like, you know, go down the street to USC, get a few interns, have them come in and clean up that database. Lo and behold, and I said, and then call me, right? Lo and behold, it was like under 10,000 that were actually active, which I thought was actually a pretty good number, having never really nurtured that database at all. I said, okay, now you can start to understand how do you sell more to them more often, more frequently. And now every new customer that you get, that kind of information is invaluable to you because why would you spend so much money to acquire new when you already have a base? Now, back to your question, Jeff, if you have five customers or you're a net new net new business, right? And you're just a startup, that base of customers may not be large enough. You're so hyper-focused on acquisition that you need to get it more into the bucket. Now, if you have a high price point dollar item, but you only have one product to sell, then you've already sold it. Now what? So if you're going to try to sell more to your base, you may have to introduce more products that are close to the core, which is a, a, you know, another path in, in product and customer diversification. And so I'd say to you that I see a lot of companies inside of recurring revenue businesses, they really understand churn and CAC or customer acquisition costs, but in non-recurring businesses, they don't pay as much attention to the existing base. Uh, and I think that that's a huge miss. I said in 2020, right before the pandemic, that I felt it was the year for brands to go back into the base to stimulate uh, revenue growth within that you know, group of customers they've already acquired. And lo and behold, uh, we got hit with the, you know, early stages of the pandemic. And sure enough, so many companies were caught not being able to go out and acquire new customers because of everything that was going on, that they had to become really, really focused on the existing base. And I think they've learned a lot of the power of that customer base and where it really has the ability to be a growth lever for them if they pay attention correctly. Yeah, no, thank, thanks for the elaboration. And I think, you know, one, one of my personal concerns as a, as a business owner is uh, it, it can be easier to sell to your existing customers, but if you're not careful and that takes over the focus, that will not be beneficial long-term and could lead to uh, you know, a, a stall point or, uh, or worse. Uh, on market acceleration is another growth path that you talk about, Tiffany. So uh, market acceleration, expanding into new markets. Now, I, I was wondering if, what kind of advice you might have for companies on how to decide if it is time and if they're ready to expand <laughs> into a different market. Because that's a question that we get a lot from our clients. Yeah, I think that without going back to what I've said, you know, I would definitely make sure you understand what your customers want from you. And, you know, very Steve Jobs, they may not know that they want, you know, something in their pocket that can hold, you know, 10,000 songs way back when, when that might've been the, the volume. And he was really focused on what are the different solutions for jobs to be done that have been around forever. And so introducing new products is either going to say your customers are asking for it, or you're really good at understanding that jobs to be done con concept and being able to uncover what you might be able to introduce into the future. But what I would say is stay close to your core, stay close to what your customers have given you permission. You know, so if you're selling something in one category and you go to a completely different category, 
that tells you that you may have challenges if you're not able to go into the existing base because they are far more likely to try new products and services from you because they've already established a relationship with you than someone who doesn't know your brand at all. And so kind of build that beachhead, which if you think about Amazon, right, they built the book beachhead. That was a very big moat, but now all of a sudden they had a huge base of customers that they could say, okay, now what else can we start to sell to this base that makes sense? Uh, and then they just continue to expand and expand and expand, you know, into categories that you would have never thought, you know, when they first stood up uh, amazon.com, that that's where they would ultimately end up. And so if you're really good about understanding those small little pivots while staying close to your core, things that make sense and in sort of value combination are ways for you to, to uh, ensure that it's going to solve those customer problems. You have a much better shot. Now, if you're just launching new products because you're just trying to get sticky, sticky, I would tell you to read the story about Starbucks in the customer experience path where they added so many things that were kind of out of category. CDs, teddy bears. They started selling all kinds of things that didn't have a whole lot to do with coffee, right? And that experience. And all of a sudden you'd walk in there and it didn't feel like a coffee shop. And so you have to be careful to not overdevelop or even McDonald's was another example. Their menu got so bloated. So they tried to hit every category of healthy and not healthy and vegan or vegetarian and not vegetarian. And they tried to hit all these categories that the menu got so big that the lines got longer and the experience declined. So don't just add for adding sake, uh, really be prescriptive and thoughtful about why, when, and where you add products. So how, I think it's a good segue into, uh, in, you know, to how do companies uh, innovate and how do you know, like how do companies sort of make sure that they're not out innovating themselves? Because, and I'll, it's a silly little example, Tiffany, but one of my favorite little hand lotions, I've bought it for years and keep it in my vehicle. And uh, like six months ago, they changed the formula and it's worse. And I still, I still buy it. But as soon as I find something that's, that's better and more like what it used to be, I'm going to switch and they'll have lost me. And I can't imagine I'm going to be the only one. And I can imagine the executives thinking, why are sales plummeting this quarter? And they may have no awareness that they they did it themselves. It was self-inflicted. So how do companies avoid that same sort of pitfall or scenario? I think there's a lot uh, that you just said there, right? Sometimes they make decisions, and I'm just going to pick this, and I don't know if this is the reason, but let's just play that out. So you, you had something you were loyal to. They changed something. You didn't like it anymore. But maybe they changed it because they changed their formula because of sustainability. I'm just, I'm just picking that as an example, right? Well, they didn't communicate to you, look, this is why we're changing our formula. You know, we're really leaning into the ESGs or the UN's uh, 30, you know, whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, while it may do this and this, we're really trying to be better for the environment. And now, even if it's a little worse, you'd be like, look, I feel like I'm glad they communicated with me, told me why they were doing it. I feel like I'm participating, you know, in the, in, you know, saving the, the planet as a, something that I'm aligned to. And, you know, sometimes things that are more healthy or cleaner aren't quite as, you know, soothing as those that have all kinds of things that are not great for the environment. Right. And so as we learn, I think if they had communicated that to you, even if it wasn't as great, you might not make the decision to switch. You might say, look, I'm committed to doing better for the planet because I might switch to somebody who's not. And so that's not, so I just give that as an example. So they missed an opportunity to communicate why, and if it was for one of those reasons, what a great thing to celebrate and communicate to the customers going back to, you know, making sure you're making a personalized, we see you've purchased this now in the consumer example you gave, they may never know who you are, right? Cause they're working through a third party retailer. Um, but they could do it more broadly across social media. They could do it in other ways. And so there is always ways to communicate that. So I'd say just that as an example, but if they just changed it, uh, and in fact, they're going to lose customers for it, uh, they will you know, ultimately learn that that was probably not the best decision. Um, but I give that as just a little caveat, right? Because they missed a perfect opportunity if that, in fact, 
was the reason. Yeah, no, I love that. And I, uh, I and it, what a what an, an addition to the customer experience component too, if they could celebrate why they change. And I mean, you're, you're giving me lots of different perspectives on why it could have happened. I mean, there could be some supply, I mean, supply chain issues are a problem for most organizations right now. Could be as simple as that. So maybe it's temporary. Uh, I think you've convinced me I'm going to submit uh, a, a complaint or something to their uh, to their hotline and see if I get an answer back. Uh, yeah, but but that's a great <laughs> but that's a great point, right? Are they even asking for feedback? And by the way, if you give that feedback and they come back and don't answer at all, or if they give you an answer that makes you feel like it was supply chain issues, it was sustainability, it was whatever it was, then you can make a much more educated decision. And so once again, going back to leadership uh, and being open to asking those questions, but then really listening to the answer uh, and then maybe pivoting from there. Um, I think there's examples across the board of when brands make uh, the wrong decision and then course correct. They're never going to be 100% correct. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you've touched on this growth path a little bit, but the um, the customer and product diversification growth path that, that is available, new products to new customers. Now, you suggest that organizations should only try that one if they're in a strong financial position. Why is that? It's an expensive risk to take. Look, you know, take a thousand shots, you're going to make one. Or even if you look at investments across the VC community, right? They know that of the 50 they're going to invest in, one or two are going to hit. And so you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket and not even those that have deep pockets and have deep customer understanding like an Amazon is going to get it right all the time. Think about their phones. There's all kinds of things they've tried that just didn't work, but you have to be willing to give it a try. Uh, and it was a new category for them. And when it doesn't work, pull the plug. Like, don't keep trying to resuscitate it uh, unless you have really deep pockets. And, you know, that's something, uh, it's a pet project you want to keep doing. Um, but for somebody who is a little more cash constrained and the risk would, could be totally detrimental to the business, I would say invest into that close to the core of what you're already selling. So, for example, you know, you, you sell um, a product that needs a case sell the case. You know, you sell a product that has accessories, you know, introduce those accessories. Um, you have something that may need training. Okay. Partner with a training company, whatever it might be, you know, really having things that are, you know, close to the core. Uh, you know, you're a small shop and you sell candles. Well, you might sell lotions, you might sell oils because people who have candle, you know, buy candles may want those things. So that's what I mean to close to the core, where if you're selling candles and then you're like, you know, I'm going to sell, I don't know, robes. Well, that might work, right? Because you're going to light a candle after a bath and you put your robe on. But there may be things that you really are stretching to. It's just not a fit. Um, that's where I think it can become uh, an expensive endeavor that's just too risky. So if you're going to make that kind of pivot, I would say the only time I would feel really comfortable in saying go for it is if your customers are saying, we want this from you and you know you're going to get that return. But that's still, uh, you know, debatable, I'd say, because sometimes they say they want it and then they don't buy it. So, you know, you have to, you have to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you, uh, you reference partnerships a little bit there. And partnerships are a very popular way to, of course, grow, grow your business, uh, strategic alliances, uh, you know, acquisitions, all that kind of stuff. Have you seen perhaps uh, like some kind of a recipe or, or some ways to vet who some good partners could be? Because I, I see this a lot that, you know, so many firms, I mean, in the space that we're in, in, in B2B and the advisory space, strategic alliances with other professional, complementary professional service firms are, are a huge part of, of our business. But it's not always easy to vet who you should partner with and, and who you shouldn't. So do you have any sort of advice on, on, on what you've seen work in that arena? Yeah, this is a topic I love. Look, I grew up in the indirect selling channel for technology, value-added reseller, systems integrator, consultant, distribution, telco, you know, 
partnership was my scale. Uh, my very last kind of role, if you will, in corporate America, where I was running teams and had you know revenue numbers. I was running a division of Gateway Computers, which for those of you who remember was the Holstein pattern boxes. Um, we did tablets before you know kind of anybody else. Uh, we did all in ones before anybody else. We were we were really early um, in a lot of those things. And I stood up the indirect channel program. And my area of coverage actually at Gartner was indirect channel strategies. And so the whole goal of that is one plus one equaling three. And so what I would always say to technology companies specifically, you know, who were trying to expand their reach is what partners are selling into your existing customers? What are they selling? Who are they? And how do you connect? So for example, I'm a Cisco reseller and I'm selling routers and switches. And there is a telco partner in there who's representing, let's say, AT&T or Verizon or T-Mobile or, um, you know, Bell Canada, whoever it might be. And you would then say, okay, well, why don't you partner with them? Because if they're going to be deploying high speed, they're going to need routers and switches. And so why don't you partner with them? Because they're not going to sell routers and switches and you don't have any interest today in selling uh, telecommunication services. Now back sort of 15 years ago, that was a good story, but now that those two channels have really blended. But I give that as an example, right? That the customer needs both. And if you could work together, wouldn't that be a better experience for the for the customer? And then you may have um, something else you might need, right? You may need security now for you know a wide area network or a, or a local area network. And so you want to bring in a security partner. Now the three of you are bringing a solution together. And the example that I give in the book was, uh, was VMware, EMC, um, and Dell and really trying to, or Cisco and really trying to figure out what are the things that we could do if we pre-bundle our solutions in a way that the customer will have less time to deploy, it will be less expensive, it will be more integrated and they'll have a better experience. That was the right way to go um, when and what, during that time that people were making huge investments in this thing called the cloud as we were pivoting from on-prem uh, to off-premise. And there's a great example. Now, when that kind of shift sort of started to decline and people were doing cloud first, the need for that um, kind of fell by the wayside. And so acquisitions happened instead of a partnership happening uh, with Dell buying uh, EMC. And so I would say that, you know, ultimately um, partnerships are a great way for you to gain reach, gain uh, capabilities, more importantly, gain key relationships and accounts that you're already in or trying to get in. Um, but you have to make sure, uh, you know, it is maybe you start out dating and then you may uh, decide to get married. And it may be a great way for you to determine good M&A targets uh, to really take the relationship even one step further. Um, but nothing moves in this world without partnerships. Uh, you know, I often say Heinz ketchup, you can't go to Heinz.com and buy it. <laughs> you have to go to a grocery store. And so everything, look at the supply chain. That's one big, huge network of partnerships of manufacturers overseas, shipping, and then, you know, getting it into whatever country you're in and then ground transportation, then getting it to the store, then putting it in the store and then someone buying it. That's a, you know, that's a supply chain that has dozens or hundreds of partnerships today. And blockchain is a great way that uh, we see usage of people tracking, you know, where things are coming from and what is that sort of supply chain. So you can figure out where you've got weak points and strong points, but I'm a huge fan of partnerships. Um, and I'm also a huge fan of coopetition, which is working with those companies that you think may in fact be competitors. Um, we're in a a sort of great case study today in vaccine creation of competitors working together to solve a huge global problem in record time would not have happened had we not had competing uh, drug manufacturers working together. Yeah, great example. We've actually got an awesome client example of, of co-opetition, uh, electrical contractor, and they partnered with two of their competitors to go after bigger jobs. And I, from what I understand, it's been wildly uh, successful. Uh, the other thing that you mentioned in your book, Tiffany, that really resonated with me, it, it is similar to the customer experience story you shared where it's got to be owned and embraced by the entire organization is uh, partnerships cannot just exist with two or three people on both sides. It's really got to be uh, embedded in the whole organization that this, this is collaboration and partnership is owned by all the employees. So I think that's uh, an important distinction to make as well. 
Well, they're an extension of your sales yeah. force, two words, <laughs> your extension of your marketing department, your extension of your customer service, your extension of your product development. I mean, they are an extension of your brand. Um, some companies have tens of thousands of partnerships. Some, some even have hundreds of thousands of partners globally that they use um, and leverage for those kinds of functions. Others have one or two very strategic partners. Um, but if you view them as an extension of your brand, you know, the sort of the greater stakeholders and shareholders of all the decisions that you make experience is a big part of how you make that experience ultimately for the end user, um, feel like the two of you are connected, not like they're working with different companies, uh, when they go, uh, to one of you for a solution that you're jointly delivering. Yeah. So, uh, next question I have for you is like, sometimes we can stick with something too long and sometimes we give up just moments before breakthrough. Are there some mm -hmm. ways to tell if you have given a growth path enough time to prove itself out? It's like a good wine. <laughs> you got to kind of cork it, let it breathe, pour it, enjoy it. And I can tell you that it was one of the most frustrating parts of my job as an analyst and a consultant was we were working down this uh, sort of path of transforming or innovating within an organization. And, you know, upfront, I'll tell you, look, if you're trying to do uh, a big innovation or transformation, whether it's technology you're using, whether it's culture, whether it's new markets, uh, ultimately you're looking at 12, 18, 24 months till you really start to see that ROI. And you may go, oh, I don't have that much time. If you're on a, I'm in a growth stall and I'm going to lose my business. I need to do something quickly. That's a very different conversation. But if you're in a, look, we're trying to build a healthy, sustainable business over the course of time. We have a little bit of growth. Now we can reinvest into the business. We can optimize where we've got fat on the bone and cut some of those costs to redeploy where we know the companies should be going in the future. It takes time. And when I would get frustrated, they would pull the plug right before they'd start to see it because, you know, the executives would be like, we're not seeing the returns on this. It's not happening fast enough. I'm like, well, hold on a second. Like we were all really clear on what the timeline was going to be. Like, let me just pick sales transformation as an example. You want to do that. It's 18 to 24 months. How do you keep revenue coming in the door while at the same time you're transforming the way you sell, go to market, the tools you use, the people you hire, all those things. If you pull the plug too quick, sure enough, you're going to be back talking to me eight months from now and saying, we're seeing the same decline. What should we be doing? And I'm like, look, had you not stopped it eight months ago, we'd be halfway through this project. But now we have to start all over again. So you have to have the willingness to, even when you feel like it's not happening fast enough, it will take time. Yeah. If you try to force too much change into your organization at the same time, it will fail underneath the weight of all that's happening simultaneously. And you'll have burnout, you know, really from a, from an employee standpoint. So I don't, I'm not suggesting that you wait because you think it's going to start working at some point. I'm saying if it's working and it takes time, you can either kind of pick, do you want it to happen faster? Do you want to spend more money? Do you want it to be, you know, more um, effective? Sometimes you can't have all three. You're going to have to pick um, what you're willing to, to do and not do. And if you have unlimited revenue and uh, money you can put into it, that's also a different conversation. Um, and if you have the ability to, you know, carve out a part of the organization that can test try, fail, learn. And then once you figure out what works, deploy to the rest of the organization, there's all kinds of ways to do it. But I'd say pulling the plug too fast is one of those ones that can be avoided um, if you're willing to really hold on and be committed to where you're trying to take your company. Yeah. And, and so we've had a chance to, to, to touch on uh, many of the growth paths. And just for, for, the, for the audience and the listeners, uh, the growth IQ is the kind of book that you're going to want to not just read it, but reread it and then read it again and keep it with you in your boardrooms and buy for your entire executive team. And it, if you're doing it the right way, I think it should be stained with coffee and there should be writing on the pages. Like it really is a reference book uh, um, with great stories and, and sort of more how to's. And so we, I'm glad we'd be able to touch on some of them. Now, one of the stories that was really compelling to me was about John Deere in the book. And 
You talk about how John Deere had a leadership team that was willing to disrupt itself so somebody else didn't come along yep. and, 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 and do it for them. You know, and I think those stories of John Deere are few and far between. And the stories of Kodak are more common where you know, they had the digital camera technology staring at them in the face, but were unwilling to adapt and change. You've worked with some great leaders, yourself being one of them. How do leadership teams deliberately create an environment where they're willing to adapt and change and let go of the things that have always served them? Look, this is really hard. I'm not going to say, sit here and say, look, it's just easy. Like just change. Change is hard, especially when it's something that you're not confident about doing. And so, you know, growth and comfort do not coexist. And that's a quote really at the beginning of my book from Ginny Rometty, the former CEO and chairman of IBM. Uh, and she's dead on correct. You just kind of have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And it requires you to have a lot of trust in your team. But more importantly, if you have a culture of sort of this psychological safety, which is Amy Edmondson's uh, work, which is fantastic around people feeling like it's okay if they try something and it doesn't work, that they're not going to you know, lose their job. Now, if it's constant, constant failure, and they're not willing to learn from that and adjust, that's a different story. But if it's just, look, they tried it, it didn't work. What did we learn? Let's keep going. Then people are going to be more willing uh, to try things. But as a leader, this is where you have to dig deep to have this sort of beginner's mind of the fixed mindset is going to be everything we've done in the past that work, we're just going to keep doing. And I'm not open to any suggestions versus this beginner's mind of giving yourself a little bit of space and time. It's where I started this conversation, right? Of being willing to hear new points of view, um, creating an environment where you have the ability to to try and innovate and fail and learn um, in a way that everybody feels inspired and safe to do that goes a long way in your ability to stay relevant, you know, over time, like using the Kodak example, that was a, they were unwilling to disrupt themselves. They were unwilling to put themselves out of business. Now you could argue the blockbuster story, but blockbuster got into streaming before Netflix, but they didn't hang on long enough. They were way too early. The context of the market was different. We didn't all have high-speed internet uh, in our homes and our businesses. And most definitely, we didn't have the power of what we have currently uh, on our cell phones today. So they were right. They were early. They just didn't hang on long enough. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I just, you know, say that it, it requires, you know, that kind of fortitude and confidence in yourself as a leader and your team and your people. Uh, but that all comes down to uh, the culture that you invest in and you build. When you, you talk about uh, the blockbuster story is interesting. And I think in hindsight, it's, uh, it's really alluring to say, okay, they, they pulled this lever and then this one and this one, and then they, this was the strategic plan. And then they executed this and made this pivot. But how much of success is just boils down to dumb luck and timing? Oh, well, I, I would tell you that um, that's that context. Timing is everything. So if you understand, right, if they had said, you know, just using Blockbuster as an example, if they had said, well, hold on, we think this is the right idea. The good news is we still have the stores. We're still delivering the job to be done, which is our customers want to watch movies with their families over the weekend. That was the job to be done. It used to be, I'm going to go to a theater. Now it's, I just want to do it at home. It's the same job. The solution changed. I now have the ability to get it on DVD. And then it was like, okay, now, you know, uh, we're going to give it streaming because we think eventually people aren't going to want to drive to the store, especially with the late fees and all the things you might go and they don't actually have the movie that you want. And the selection was limited to the size of the store. And so if they'd known that the solution was going to change and they're like, look, we think the timing of high speed, right. For people to be able to look at this is going to be five years. Are we willing to hang on if we continue to build our base of customers who use our current service? And we start to introduce as the country in the U S specifically started to get high speed. We can start opening that up in particular parts of the country. If they had done that, knowing the context, instead of saying, uh, it's just not going to work. And by the way, they did that in a partnership with a company called Enron. So there was a partnership play for them um, that would they be in a different position today? 
And so, you know, I think that it's it's context. Uh, it's a little bit of luck, obviously. <clears throat> but the big aha for me in the book was sequence. The order in which you do things has incredible inc implications into your ability of being able to be successful. It isn't, you just do all of it at the same time. Um, it doesn't matter what order it absolutely matters in what order or sequence uh, you execute on those decisions that you've made. Yeah, no, that's well, well said, Tiffany. Uh, and some of the time we have left, I, I, I'd like to talk about you a little bit. And uh, as I understand it, so prior to COVID, uh, you put on uh, uh, so many miles uh, on air travel that you would put George Clooney, Clooney and up in the air to shame. <laughs> yeah, so, so I can imagine the culture shock it would have been for you when, when, uh, when COVID set in. And, I, and I'm wondering, in, you know, in the last couple of years, uh, what have you learned about yourself as a result? I am not an AV person. I've learned that about myself. I am in a full-blown studio in my garage that I set up on my own. Um, and, and trust me when I tell you, like I have such mad love now for all the people uh, around the globe that get me all wired up and set up and slides and cameras and lighting, um, because it's, it's not as uh, easy as it looks. So I'd say that was a big adjustment. Um, but on a personal note, it was really challenging for me the first sort of six or eight months. I was a little lost in, you know, that is where I get my inspiration and my insights and my conversations all happened while I was on the road and recreating that kind of happenstance communication um, is really difficult in a virtual world. Um, plus I'd been, as you mentioned, you know, 2019, I'd flown uh, 600,000 kilometers or 275,000 miles, six continents, you know, and all of a sudden that just stopped, uh, you know, so uh, I often joked that first kind of, you know, four or five months, I would just walk around with my suitcase to just feel like it was a normal day. Um, but, uh, you know, besides work, it really gave me uh, time to sort of reflect on, you know, what are the things I could be doing differently? What should I be doing next? What could really add value to myself as well as to those that um, have followed my work? And so it, it really forced me to kind of reset, um, which did a lot of good uh, for me on both sides, both personally and professionally. But I, but I'm, I, you know, first to say that it was a big adjustment and it wasn't easy. Yeah, no, I can appreciate that. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, Salesforce sounds like a really cool place to work. And I, I, I wonder what are some things, what are some of the cool things that Salesforce has done during COVID to, to uh, maintain and grow employee engagement? So when it first uh, first happened and we first had the lockdowns, we started doing um, all hands executive calls, uh, which gave us exposure to our entire leadership team, as well as our board of directors uh, on a weekly basis, just talking about sort of what's happening, what are we doing? Um, and we've maintained it. Uh, and our co-CEOs, Mark and Brett, have both committed to continuing uh, to do that, uh, not quite as often. I think now it's uh, every other week. Um, and that was one thing. The next thing we did was uh, Mark challenged us to have 1 million conversations with our customers to go out there and uncover those jobs to be done. And what will our customers need next? And in classic Salesforce form, we hit a million and a half and now we're well over 7 million conversations. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, sales calls. It wasn't product demos. It wasn't RFP responses. It was, it was really, how can we help you stabilize your business? How can we help you get back to the office? How can we help you get back to growth? What are you looking for? We listened for those signals of what they need, which meant we launched new products. We reorganized some of our product teams, opened up new recs, all that kind of uh, stuff around the business. Um, you know, we knew uh, collaboration was going to be big. We acquired Slack uh, during that time as well. But on the personal side, we launched something called Be Well internally, just to kind of give our internal employees, you know, a, a forum by which they could hear about things to help them on mental health and, you know, sort of working remotely and how to do things, you know, with your kids from an education standpoint, we then push that out um, to everybody, you know, to the public. And then we did something called leading through change, which was the same kind of thing, having conversations with executives and leaders from around the world on how they were uh, dealing with this change, which we now have considered uh, or continued, you know, on a global basis. And then we launched Salesforce plus, which was a way for us to share all that content in a much more global uh, basis. So um, we've done uh, no meetings Thursdays, wellness Fridays, take the day off as a company one time a month. I mean, there's been so many things that we've done um, to help us 
stay connected to our customers, stay connected to each other, but also to make sure that that the safety and well-being of all the employees on a global basis is front and center for us as a company. Wow, sounds like Salesforce is really taking care of people. Uh, what are you working on right now? What's got uh, what's got you curious about the business world, and what can we look forward to in the future from Tiffany Bova? Uh, you know, I'd say that, uh, you know, while there were 10 amazing growth paths and growth IQ, uh, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on the employee side. And if you've paid attention to uh, what I've been pushing out content wise over the last sort of 18 months, it's been squarely focused um, on the employee and the connection with customer experience and those two things really driving growth. So I was involved in primary research, both in the US and then we just finished globally that we're going to be launching. Uh, it's going to be the foundation for my next book that's going to be coming out next year. Uh, it's not coming out in 2022. Um, the supply chain has sort of, you know, made that a little more challenging, but also uh, I think it just wasn't the right time. I think 2023 will be the, the right time for me to uh, push my next book. So I'm crossing my fingers, you know, I'm in the middle of, of writing it and, and spending a lot of time talking to some amazing people. And uh, hopefully, you know, you will all get a chance to read the second book uh, come probably 12 months from now. Yeah, that's exciting. I can't wait. Uh, you know, Tiffany, I, I loved this book. Uh, I have, uh, in COVID, one of the things I've really enjoyed about COVID, which might sound really strange to say, but it has been making connections with people that uh, you probably ordinarily may not have, have ever met. And so I know we're meeting virtually, but uh, certainly you've been one of the bright spots and just such a joy to interact with and, and learn from. I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Um, where, where, uh, where do you want people to connect with you? Well, you know, I'm super active on social media. As, uh, as Jeff mentioned, you can also text uh, the word email to 55444 and get on my newsletter, uh, which is a great way to stay connected to the work that I'm putting out. Uh, you know, follow me on LinkedIn, um, but I'm always, always, as Jeff did, you know, interested to hear what you think if you read the book, what stood out to you, because it allows me to understand where I should be spending more of my time um, and more of my sort of, you know, effort from a sharing perspective. So listen, if you agreed with something you heard today, that's fantastic. If you didn't agree with something you heard today, even better, because that helps me sort of shape, right? That's the way uh, I continue to learn is getting feedback from the things I'm out uh, talking uh, and advising about. Yeah. And there's that beginner's mindset at play. Uh, you, you really walk the talk. Uh, Tiffany, thank you so much for being here today. And when the next book comes out, I hope you come back and join us again and look, uh, look forward to seeing you on, uh, on Twitter and beyond. Excellent. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks everybody for joining us. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you. Thank you. All right. And that brings us to a close of our first episode of season five. So we've been doing this for almost two years. So thank you everybody. Uh, thank you everybody so much for joining us. And if you want to stay connected with us and on the platform, you can find us on all your favorite social channels on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And of course, find us on LinkedIn. And if you want to send the, uh, the episode recordings to your colleagues and friends and watch them over yourself, be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel or find us wherever your favorite podcasts can be found. Thanks for tuning in. Now, if you found today's conversation helpful, don't forget to share it with your friends and colleagues who like learning as much as you do. And if you're a leader of a business and you're ready to take the next step because you know there's unleashed potential that exists within it, don't wait another minute. Go to unleashresults.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We'll take care of the rest.